Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you the latest installment of our Salt Talks crypto series uh, with Joshua Frank, who is the co-founder and CEO of The Tie, uh, which is a leading information services provider for digital assets. Their goal is to help crypto market participants act quickly and accurately on market moving information faster with proprietary social sentiment and crypto SIG dev feeds, which is their trademarked uh, flagship product. Josh began his career working on post-trade technology at financial technology conglomerate SSNC uh, after graduating from McGill University in Montreal. I'm going to be hosting your, your talk today. Again, my name is John Darcy. In addition to being the managing director of SALT, I'm also a director of business development at Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm uh, managing about $8 billion today including over a billion dollars in crypto assets, which we're very excited to be uh, what we feel like one of the early movers in the space, even though we weren't uh, early on Bitcoin per se, but very excited to have a heavy involvement in the crypto digital asset world and working with people like Josh. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Where we sort of like to start all of our Salt Talks crypto episodes is to sort of talk people through where you had your, uh, let's say, eureka moment on crypto. There's certain people that either came from the legacy finance world or came from technology and have arrived at crypto. You're a relatively young guy, so you're sort of uh, crypto native in some ways, and you've got it uh, more organically than some people do. But could you just talk us through when you got really enthusiastic about crypto, about blockchain, and decided to devote your career to the space? Yeah. So my first exposure to digital assets was probably around 2012, uh, pretty early, uh, where, where my, when my co-founder, my current co-founder, uh, was doing short-term uh, Bitcoin loans on Bitfinex, earning like 140% a year. And uh, I was like, this makes no sense. What is this Bitcoin <laughs> thing? Like these yields are ridiculous. Something is happening. It doesn't make any sense. And ignored it for about five years uh, and did nothing. So I'm not uh, that early. And uh, graduated college in 2017, took a job, you know, you mentioned at SSC Technologies uh, and was working in post-trade settlement tech, which is actually more boring than it sounds, if you believe it or not. And so uh, I started- sounds exciting. Uh, It sounds exciting, but- uh, real, Really exciting, really exciting. Uh, sending email, uh, like customer support uh, emails, or, or sorry, email uh, resets, like reset password emails. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, it was thrilling, thrilling job, making about 40,000 US dollar equivalent a year. It was just a great, great first job out of college. And so I uh, was super bored at my day job and started day trading crypto and at the same time was using sentiment data to build systematic models on equities and kind of put two and two together and was like, if I can use sentiment data to predict the movement of a stock that has earnings and revenue and dividends in the digital asset space where there's nothing quote unquote fundamentally driving the value of this, these assets, one would inevitably think that sentiment was a leading indicator. And, and that's kind of how I got, I got started. I was basically bored, making a ton of money trading crypto and was like, I don't understand why these things are moving. Let me kind of try to make sense of it. And, you know, 
quit my job um, and basically started this company, you know, initially as a sole operating co-founder, uh, trying to bring alternative data into digital assets. And that's very different than the business we have today, but that's kind of how I got started in the space. Right. And you talked about how you're trying to fill a need that exists in the crypto world for more transparent, more trusted data. I think we're obviously still very early on that. Traditional markets, I think, have become fairly efficient uh, in terms of things like spreads, in terms of things like information. I think there's still opportunities to, to uh, generate alpha based on information flow, but it seems like there's much more opportunity for that in crypto. How would you rate sort of the efficiency and the maturation of crypto markets today versus what we see in traditional markets? Yeah, we're so early. I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, just for perspective on, on what we're doing in terms of how bad the problem is. So our, our what we realized the biggest problem that anybody had, and sure there's market data and things like that, which are certainly problems, but the biggest problem that anybody has is, is really the fact that no one has any idea what's going on in crypto. Like you go and you talk to somebody and you're like, you're trading 20 assets. How are you staying on top of all the news and information around those assets? In equity markets, it's a really simple question. It's, I log on Bloomberg. I log on facts that are even I log on Yahoo Finance and I can see news and corporate actions around equities. In crypto, this market is so disparate, like information is so disparate that, you know, you talk to a hedge fund manager in crypto, you're saying, how are you trading? You're just staying on top of your assets. They have three analysts spending their lives on on Twitter. They're in 100,000 discords, 200,000 Discord, Telegram yeah. channels, right? They're subscribed to all these newsletters and that doesn't make any sense. And so our, our actually what our bread and butter has just become is tracking all this information in real time. And, and so just for some perspective here, I mean, we parse through every single SEC filing in real time looking for mentions of crypto. And like we picked up the Goldman Sachs DeFi ETF news two hours before anybody covered that news story. We picked up the Van Eck ETF news 20 minutes before anybody covered the news story. The only reason anybody covered the Van Eck ETF news is the two biggest crypto publications by reach actually use us to source all their breaking news. So we're always going to be before them naturally. But like we track every court case, every regulatory ruling, every update from token, et cetera. But I mean, in some cases, we're finding things like we found announcements of exchange listings in Korea that are six hours before anybody in the US knows about them because they don't write about them in English. And so from that perspective, I mean, it's it's so early from the blockchain data perspective. I mean, you go and you talk to traditional asset managers, they have no idea how to use this data yet, right? You know, market data is is getting there. But broadly speaking, I mean, the information is not there. There's not a trusted centralized, you know, information flow. There's no earnings calls. There's no investor relations dashboards, right? That just doesn't exist. And so the only way to make sense of crypto is to bring information together from all these disparate sources. And we're getting there. And certainly that's my business, right? That's what we're trying to do, right. but it's still very early. And, and how well are you able to tap in? You mentioned Discord, you mentioned things like Telegram. How well are you able to tap into those types of sources to glean information? Is that an automated process? Do you have analysts that go through and manually track those communities or how does that work? So our clients, uh, you know, have analysts that will manually go on and track. We're trying to build a, you know, a SaaS business, right? That's scalable. And so all of what we do is automated. So we parse through some, you know, some normal sources like your Twitters, your Discords, Reddits, things like that. But we're doing some really cool alternative data. We're actually, to my knowledge, the first data company in the world to do TikTok data. And that sounds obscene and that sounds like absolutely ridiculous, but it's crypto and these things are moving from TikTok. And actually the really cool thing is we actually work with the... To the reason we started doing a lot of this weird alternative data is we were working with the tokens to help them build like ultra-targeted influencer marketing campaigns using data, like understanding which influencers are driving social conversations, liquidity and different metrics. 
And we were like, a lot of this is being driven by TikTok. And now we're kind of reverse engineering that for institutions, which is pretty cool. Um, and so it's all automated, right? It's building technology to go out to these thousands of disparate sources, scrape them and pull on information. Uh, but it's difficult because like with Discord, for example, what do you pull? Like everyone's like, oh, do you do Discord data? I'm like, we can, but what do you want to see from Discord? Because it's like a bunch of degenerates <laughs> sending pepes and memes to each other. Like where is the alpha in there? Yeah. And, and the difficulty is trying to find signal amongst the vastness of crypto noise when Shiba Inu and Dogecoin are in the top 10, right? You know, you know, you kind of have a, a noise problem. So you talked about how you work with token foundations to build communities and engage with communities and build effective sort of launch plans and, and uh, long-term roadmaps. What are the elements that, uh, that separate a successful launch or a successful meme coin or whatever it may be and the ones that just essentially no one ever hears about that flounder and flop and basically go to zero. You know, Shiba Inu is one that obviously rocketed higher. Uh, Squid, uh, Squid Coin, Squid Game Coin is one that, you know, went higher and then flopped. What are the things that, that make for a successful launch and a long-term successful shelf life? Yeah, look, I think that's a, low, it's a very loaded and difficult question. Uh, I, there's a lot of things, right? There's a lot of factors. Obviously, community is the biggest one, I think. Uh, you know, crypto, there are no fundamentals, right? And so the fundamentals of crypto are community, right? The reason that Shiba and Doge and Squid or whatever this, well, Squid's not worth anything anymore. It was worth something like a week ago. But the reason that any of these things are quote unquote worth anything is because there's giant communities of people that support them. I mean, you take some of the largest projects, even like Cardano and XRP, they do not have a lot of support from institutions in crypto and from people that are kind of in the know, but on the retail side, they do, right? There's massive communities that support these projects. So I think community is obviously a big one of them. I think, you know, institutional support is clearly one of them. I mean, you look at Solana, um, you know, and, and that was clearly FTX and Sam and, you know, and Jump and those guys that built out and, and brought attention to this ecosystem and started building on top of it. But there's also things which are less obvious, like token pricing. And like, we found a tremendous amount of empirical evidence that basically all else equal, the lower your token price, the better you perform. And it kind of makes sense, right? Because retail investors, and this is why like all these meme coins that come out, come out at like fractions of pennies. They're like, if this thing hits one penny and I put a hundred dollars into it, I'm a billionaire. Meanwhile, they don't understand the concept of market cap and the idea that, Hey, right. you can't have an asset worth 47 quintillion dollars, but maybe you can because it's crypto and these things are illiquid and maybe that will happen. I think that did happen with a squid game coin. I think it actually became like a quadrillion dollar asset or something ridiculous like that, but I could be wrong. Yeah. And uh, I'm just curious, you talked about sort of your entrance into crypto and you had friends that were you know, involved with Bitcoin and, and trading crypto markets and things like that. Do you come at, at crypto from sort of a Bitcoin maxi perspective that, that Bitcoin is the ultimate sound money and, and that's the basis for everything? Or, or are you more of a blockchain technology as a massive breakthrough uh, type of perspective? Yeah, I, look, I, I wouldn't say I'm one way or the other very strongly. I, I believe in the Bitcoin store of value digital gold narrative and, and Bitcoin is and has been my largest crypto holding. Um, but I think that there's there's certainly applications to a lot, uh, application to a lot of the other things being built out there. There are a lot of interesting things that we're seeing, a, a tremendous amount of usage. I'm more mostly interested on the DeFi side. And, and one thing that really interests me about DeFi, and, and not a lot of people talk about this, DeFi is only 5% of the overall crypto market capitalization. It's still such a small fraction of overall, maybe it's five or 600 you know, million, billion dollars, maybe it's, uh, or five or 600 
what is in our, our 50 to $60 billion. That's the number. Sorry. Yeah. It's still a very, very small fraction of the overall crypto market cap, uh, but it's growing. And so I wouldn't say I'm necessarily one way or the other. I think a lot of crypto is, is, is nonsense transparently. I think a tremendous amount of the assets on the market, if not the vast, vast, vast majority are nonsense. That said, I service traders, right? My clients are point and click traders. They're systematic traders. And the fact of the matter is there's a tremendous amount of interest in this market. There's a tremendous amount of volatility in this market. There's a tremendous amount of inefficiency in this market. And that leads to incredible trading opportunities, right? And so regardless of whether or not you believe in the long-term value of any of these assets, there's still a tremendous you know, reason to kind of get behind it. But I, I do you know, certainly see application behind Solana, behind Ethereum, behind a lot of these other, behind you know, your avalanches, your Algorand of the world, behind a lot of these, the larger layer ones. But then I look at, you know, you know, projects that are 60 or 70 billion in market cap that have absolutely zero usage. And I'm like, this is nonsense. Then I see all these meme coins and then I see all these NFTs and I'm just like, what is going on? I mean, it's like, it's fake money at this point because these things aren't actually liquid. They can never act. You can never actually sell that much of them. Right. I mean, it seems like a lot of the NFT projects that really moon are ones where the community can sort of create a scarce supply just by sort of teaming up and, and, uh, not not listing their NFTs or, or whatever it may be. I mean, I think Ether Rocks is one example. And it's also it's also so easy to wash trade an NFT, right? It's easy to wash trade anything, but like an NFT, you make two wallet addresses or five wallet addresses, you sell to yourself, sell to yourself, sell to yourself, sell to yourself, and then oh, it went on a discount, it's sixty percent off. Meanwhile, you've wash traded up six hundred percent already, right? So right. you know that the, the challenge with NFTs is what's real and what's not, and I, I don't know, which is why I don't I don't play that game. But that said, I think there's application just. You know, we're going a little cuckoo here. If I'm, you know, I, I try to take a pragmatic approach to the market. It's going to be an, uh, an interesting year for tax reporting for a lot of people in the NFT space uh, when the IRS tries to figure out all the different uh, movement of coins. How do you how do you mark to market your NFTs? Uh, there's a whole bunch of questions that I think they're trying to figure out how to unpack, but but I'll leave that to uh, to the accountants. Uh, in addition to providing real-time market data, you guys also provide what I think are really interesting research reports on things, uh, deep dives into DeFi protocols, examining correlations in crypto markets. One of the, the interesting things and things that I get asked a lot from people who are less familiar with the crypto market is sort of the correlation and patterns we see with prices of things like Bitcoin versus altcoins and, and NFTs versus currencies. Are there any types of patterns and correlations that you guys have observed over time in terms of how the price of Bitcoin moves relative to altcoins and just the way the entire market sort of ebbs and flows? Yeah. And so this is, I would say this is more an observation versus a systematic approach, but I'll give you more systematic approaches in a second. The observation and is when no one's talking about crypto by Bitcoin, when everyone's talking about Bitcoin by shitcoins, and when your grandma starts talking about shitcoins run. And that's kind of just like, it's just been this pattern over time that's just worked, right? Where when the market's quiet, you'd rather be in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a lot more stable. It doesn't, it doesn't move as much. It's not going to drop as much. It has some upside. But then when Bitcoin starts that move, right, where Bitcoin goes from, you know, 50 to 65, right? right. You know, alts are kind of quiet. But once that moves happens, because alts are much more liquid, they just see these absolutely massive runs. And the, the hard thing is to know when to get out because the thing is, you know, everyone's like, oh, the market is so frothy, it's so bubbly, whatever. But you can have a frothy market that 5X is again, right? And like we're right. seeing that with Solana, right? I mean, Solana was 
what, $2 at the beginning of this year, it's $250, $260 today, right? right. And it, it could double again, like, and people wouldn't really be surprised. And so that's more of like, I would say the observational side of it from more of a, a system, you know, a more of a, a quantitative or mathematical perspective. I mean, certainly this market is incredibly correlated uh, to one another. Um, certain subsectors are correlated. So a lot of times what we'll see is this market is very narrative driven, right? And we see that like, First, like this year, earlier this year, creator coins were a thing. So Chili's had a run up and then Rally, which is another creator coin, had a run up. And then layer ones were a thing. And so, you know, you know, Polkadot ran, then Solana ran, then Avalanche ran, then Algorand ran. And so, you know, an approach that a lot of people in this space have is just like, okay, this is a basket of 10 things. Which one of the 10 things haven't moved yet? Let me go into that thing. And that kind right. of just continues to happen over and over again. Uh, but but what kind of leads to price movement? We've actually found some like really interesting patterns and things that that lead to price movement. I mean, one of the biggest things is when you just see a tremendous amount of announcements from tokens and like listings on exchanges, we put out a research piece on that. Those actually tend to be a really good indicator of altcoins outperforming Bitcoin. And so I think it's really hard to pick what alt is going to win. I think it's a lot easier to build systematic models on should you be an alt versus Bitcoin for periods of time. Right. Yeah, I remember, I mean, when Bitcoin had its its recent jump in price after going through a period of, of softness post Elon's tweet, uh, it seemed like a, a layup trade to me. I, I don't do a lot of day trading of crypto per se, but uh, I think Solana was trading around 160 after it had, it had previously gone above 200. And it just seemed like a layup um, to, to follow that pattern that you described is when Bitcoin is getting all of the headlines, it's time to start creeping into some of the alts. And, and that played out both with Ethereum, which I guess you could consider an alt altcoin still, and then things like Solana as well. Um, well let's talk a little bit about today. Uh, you know, we're recording this on Monday, November 8th, just transparently, this might air a couple of days from now, but what type of signals are you seeing uh, in sentiment today for something like Bitcoin? Bitcoin's trading at or near all-time highs as we record this. But what are these sentiment drivers that, that may be uh, forecasted this move, or, or what are you observing in markets today with Bitcoin? And then you can go into altcoins after that. Yeah, I mean, I'm pulling this up just so I can take a look on our platform. I mean, you know, we're seeing a tremendous amount of, of Twitter activity and other activity around Bitcoin, uh, but even more so around altcoins. I mean, I'm looking, Solana today has it. I know we talked a lot about Solana, and so, you know, I apologize, but Solana is seeing an 855% increase in Twitter activity today. Avalanche is seeing 860%. This is versus a 30-day moving average. And so we're seeing a tremendous amount of more people talking about these assets. We measure this metric called long-term sentiment, which just looks at how bullish or bearish investors are over the last 50 days versus the previous 200. And what we've seen with Bitcoin is that it stayed above like 70, which means it's bullish. And the thing to note is that means Bitcoin actually has to become more bullish because it's it's rolling 50 versus the previous 200 days. So for it to continue to stay high, it has to continue to become more and more bullish. And we're, we're seeing across the board is just bullishness. I mean, look, I mean, Bitcoin broke at all-time highs or 66K today. Um, and that probably is leading to a lot of the bullishness. But the interesting thing is the alts are being talked about a lot more than, than you know, Bitcoin seemingly is. I mean, Solana right. actually has more conversations online today than Ethereum, which is pretty wild. And so Largely I think probably you know, the fact that uh, Solana has its breakpoint conference going on in Lisbon. Yes. But, um, you know, trying to, you know, just provide a balanced perspective on that. But we're, we're obviously both fans of Solana. Yeah, look, I mean, I think the market is bullish and, and this is less, you know, less um, quantitative as well. But 
from our perspective and, and your perspective is similar, you know, being a fund of funds and, you know, speaking to so many different hedge funds, I'm sure you have this. I mean, we have clients in this space, which are traditional hedge funds, which are publicly saying they're not in crypto. And I can tell you privately that they're not just in Bitcoin. They are trading like really random altcoins. It's kind of funny, actually. Like, you know, sometimes I'll talk to a hedge fund. I'm like, how did you find out about this thing? Like, they're like, we just took a big position in like Thorchain or this or that, which Thorchain is a real project. Don't get me wrong. But it's like, how is that the project you stumbled on? Right. Um, so it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, and, and the demand that we're seeing is through the roof. And, and like, you know, look, you talk about like these big, these big hedge funds, these 40, $50 billion funds, you know, maybe some of the ones that operate in pods, you know, maybe it's two pods that are using it, or maybe it's a small team at these funds, but the sentiment among institutions is, is unbelievable. I mean, and I think somebody put out data on hiring at banks for crypto. And even though these guys may be publicly negative, it's like a hundred new jobs hired, 80 new jobs hired, seven new jobs hired for crypto. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it's sort of every time Jamie Dimon comes out with his latest utterance on why he doesn't like Bitcoin or doesn't like crypto, I feel like somebody taps him on the shoulder and says, hey, Jamie, we have a 200-person team at JP Morgan working on blockchain crypto stuff. Maybe uh, dampen your, your criticism slightly of, of crypto. And the funny um, thing is that's negligible for JP Morgan. Yeah, exactly. In the grand scheme of things, it's probably small, but they, they do have a meaningful group of people that are working on these things. And, and almost every bank does because they see, you know, Coinbase approaching the market cap of Goldman Sachs. And it's a wake up call for, you know, these banks, even some of the more prestigious banks in the world see that they have to they have to devote time and energy to this. Yeah, I think um, the one thing to note is those guys are probably going to struggle, though, because um, the thing is, the thing to remember is people in crypto <laughs> made so much money, like the traders, the people in this space for a while made so much money. Like, why would you want to leave a job at a crypto hedge fund where you're getting carry and you're allowed to trade whatever garbage token you want and you're allowed to trade NFTs and you're allowed to yield farm and like you have like this basically no limitations in your mandate to go join a traditional hedge fund and trade or like, why would you want to leave a crypto startup like to go to a big bank when like there's no rules and you have upside and, and, and options. And so, I mean, I think it's a, it's a great time to be in crypto and look, I mean, you know, look, we're certainly set up to service. I, our clients are primarily traditional as opposed to crypto native. Like that's who we service. However, you know, I think what we're seeing with our clients is they're having a really hard time recruiting talent away from crypto. And a lot of the promotions they're doing are internal because people in crypto are having, you know, the time of their life right now. I mean, there's no, there's no place more fun to be in than crypto, but right. just like, you know, the party can end at some point. So, yeah. And, and, uh, talking about institutional penetration, one thing Anthony Scaramucci, our, our founder managing partner talks about is that while there's all this talk about institutional penetration, it really isn't here yet. You know, it's it's very shallow in terms of true, you know, whether it be uh, sovereign wealth funds, pensions, endowments, big banks buying crypto themselves. Maybe some of their clients are doing it either in, in their, their accounts or, or separately. Uh, but what have you guys observed about where we are in terms of institutional penetration and, and what it could do to crypto market cap if we do get incremental gains in that area? I mean, it's it's here. It's it's small and it's starting, but it's here. What I what I say is, you know, from talking to a lot of hedge funds, what a lot of them are doing uh, is they're investing either out of their PA or they're investing out of the GP as opposed to the LP, right? So they're using partner capital and they're they're starting to trade crypto. They maybe are investing in growth equity rounds and in companies or whatever else. 
They're starting to invest, you know, with GP Capital, build up a track record, and then raising a new fund from LPs. And a lot of them are going out to their traditional LP base, and they're saying, "Hey, guys, you know, we've traded, you know, equities or structured credit products or whatever else. You guys trust us. We know what we're doing. We've been doing this for 20 years. This is an awesome asset class, an awesome opportunity. Returns are outsized, right? You know, give us the opportunity to deploy your capital. We're seeing that. I mean." One of the biggest private equity firms that's not announced yet just raised a $450 million fund. A $50 billion hedge fund just raised a $750 billion fund. I mean, the capital is now flowing in. It's coming in, but it's coming in slowly, right? These guys need to get their bearings, their grips. A lot of them started with CME Bitcoin uh, a few, uh, probably you know, December of last year, November of last year. Now some of them are moving to spot. You know, Now some of them are doing cash and carry trades and they're getting there. It's taking time, but they're getting there. And I think... Once the funds that people are familiar with that they're already invested in start to build up that track record, start to prove themselves, build that knowledge base, make those hires, I think a lot of those same LPs, like if the if an endowment is an investor in whatever hedge fund, they'll start to say, "All right, I'll give you fifty million dollars for your new crypto fund." They may not, or maybe the the, the endowment will buy a Bitcoin position, but right. for an, an allocation to alts, I think it's going to be through liquid token vehicles through more traditional hedge funds. And in terms of uh, what could you know, rain on the parade of crypto markets today or dampen sentiment long term. I think obviously regulatory issues are sort of top of mind for people. There's been noise from the SEC, Gary Gensler, about, you know, Bitcoin versus some of these other tokens that might be uh, security offerings and how do you regulate DeFi uh, and things like that. What type of signals do you guys look for in terms of regulatory filings or words or phrases or things that are used by regulators? And how much of a threat do you think regulation is based on your reading of data uh, to markets? And what's the time frame for that? So the Dallas Federal Reserve Bank about a year ago put out some research on the regulatory impact of positive and negative regulation on Bitcoin. I can't remember what the average price impact was, but it was below 2% positive or negative in the direction of the news. So it wasn't, it wasn't crazy. Obviously, something like the People's Bank of China coming out and making a bold statement around about Bitcoin has an impact, but it's generally temporary. Um, you know what we're looking for is any regulatory ruling from like the FCA, which is the UK's version of the SEC, or the SEC or major financial regulators that is basically coming down an individual token or individual company or court cases or things like that, or kind of broader regulation. Certainly, I think the regulators can have an impact though. If regulators like go after founders of DeFi projects, I'd be scared shitless if I was the founder of a DeFi project, right? Uh, and I'd be afraid to hold the token. I mean, look, it just depends what regulators do. I mean, if regulators come out and say Ethereum is a security, which I don't think they're going to do, I, there's no chance, but let's take let's take a different asset, for example, let's say XRP is a security because that you know court case is obviously in session. Right. It's never going to be able to li- be listed on a US exchange again, and that's going to hurt the asset, right? So I think regulators can certainly have an impact. I don't think it's long-term though because of the decentralized nature of crypto, you know, you know, like for example, China came down on Bitcoin and what happened? Hash rate on Bitcoin is back up. All the mining activity just came to the US. And, you know, I talked to somebody in, in Mongolia building Bitcoin miners the other day, right? I mean, this is really a in Africa. I mean, this is becoming a, a global industry. And so I think certainly regulators could have an impact, but it's it's not necessarily long term. Right. And and you're starting to see even U.S. cities sort of jockey for Bitcoin crypto supremacy. You have the incoming mayor of New York, Eric Adams, 
talking about wanting to make Bitcoin uh, central to his economic plan in New York and trying to incubate uh, an increasing amount of crypto and, and blockchain activity in New York City. Obviously, Miami has sort of put its flag in the ground as wanting to be the crypto capital, not only of the, of the United States and of the world. Uh, how much of an impact do you think that has on crypto markets, you know, uh, public policy officials proactively trying to create these ecosystems? I think in aggregate, it probably has an impact individually, not so much. Um, the reason I say that is like the first time Elon Musk tweeted about Bitcoin had a big impact. Second time had a smaller impact. Third time, smaller, smaller, right? right. This industry is so narrative driven and narratives just wear out so fast and it moves so, so, so fast that like MicroStrategy, if MicroStrategy went out and bought $100 million of the Bitcoin, you probably wouldn't even hear about it. But the first time that happened, Bitcoin went up, what, like 10 or 20% or whatever the ridiculous number was. And so, look, I think in aggregate, it has an impact, right? I think if at a federal level in the US, something happened, that's a lot bigger than like, look, look, I love what Suarez is doing in Miami. I'm all for it. But like, like also, how is Eric Adams even getting Bitcoin? Like the New York has bit license regulation and there's no way right. the New York, New York City is set up to pay him in Bitcoin. That's kind of, you know, whatever. But the point being is I look in aggregate maybe, but I don't think it's massive unless, you know, it, maybe it's good if New York creates a ton of incentives and tax breaks and things that bring crypto companies here and incentivize innovation. That's probably good, but that's a five-year play. That's not, you know, tomorrow. Yep. Well, you talked about earlier about getting some of these regulatory filings sooner than everybody else, you know, whether it's an ETF filing or, or something from overseas that you're translating and using your proprietary tech uh, mm -hmm. to find signals more quickly. What are the types of data? I, I mentioned, you know, things like regulatory news, but what are the types of data that tend to move markets the most, you know, whether it's keywords or, you know, different types of announcements, but what, what type of signals do you think are, are the loudest? So it depends on the asset, right? So with Bitcoin, it's a lot different than with altcoins. Um, with Bitcoin, it is, you know, regulation. It is a massive company buying. It is filings. It is maybe macro news. So maybe interest rate changes or, you know, economic crashes or anything like that. That tends to have an impact on Bitcoin. Um, with small, the smaller you get with altcoins, and we find that the signal is, Signals are usually best with mid-cap altcoins. And what I mean by that is the really small coins, it's really hard to like build models to trade them because they're so illiquid that if one person decides to sell 100 grand worth, it could drop 20% and it doesn't matter what happens, right? right? And so with the really small coins, it's really hard to systematically trade. Those are like VC bets, right? It just It's hard to build models around that. With the larger coins... They're just so large at this point. I mean, Ethereum is what, 500 billion, 600 billion? It's, it's a mega token, right? And so, you know, something that would move Ethereum is like some major mainnet launch or something like that. I don't think it's a part, if Ethereum partners with anybody, it's not going to move the price. But with the smaller altcoins, right? Partnerships, mainnet launches, things like that tend to have a really big impact. But again, it's like, it, the, the impact mutes over time. So the first time something gets announced, it's a big impact. Then over time, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, right? So when like a, a layer one says, hey, we have smart contracts, boom, that's huge. When they say we have our first DeFi project, that's huge. When the 75th project lists on that blockchain, it's not necessarily going to have as big of an impact, right? And so a lot of times it's the first or second announcement for these projects that tend to have a big impact. 
Uh, are you and, accounting and also, for and, things like that? Are you, are you accounting for diminishing returns of those types of announcements in your signals for different coins, or it's just you're providing those data points and uh, letting your your clients glean uh, the insights from those? Yes. Yeah, so, so well, systematically, our clients would have to figure it out. The majority of our clients are actually discretionary. We have a terminal that looks something like a fact set Bloomberg for crypto that brings together market data, news, sentiment data, on-chain data, derivatives data, everything in an all-in-one interface. Uh, and so there you can actually see if the news is repetitive or not, uh, like if this, this type of announcement has happened in the past or if it's kind of a first announcement. And the other thing I'd say with altcoins and that impact is becoming smaller today, but is exchange listings, right? If you're a smaller token and then you get listed on Coinbase, on average in 2020, there was a 50.4% increase in the price of an asset between the time Coinbase announced the listing and the end of the day when that asset was listed. So generally, they announced it a couple of days before, a 50.4% average price impact. I mean, just think about that in context of equity markets. People are like excited to make like 6% a year and a right. listing results in a 50% increase on average. And that's that's decreasing over time. And certainly you can't necessarily trade that at so much scale because there's so much capital rushing in. A lot of times it's like a big pump and then a dump too. But but things like that are, are, are generally great opportunities. And I would also say that crypto tends to be buy the rumor, sell the news uh, very heavily uh, in this market. Yep. Where you have alluded to this throughout the conversation, but where is the the majority, uh, and how is it broken down in terms of the people that are interested in your your platform and your tools? So is it, you know, is it retail? Is it prop trading firms? Is it hedge funds? Is it, you know, higher on the institutional totem pole, you know, sovereigns and and endowments and pensions? But what does your your client makeup look like, and what does that tell us about the crypto ecosystem? Uh, primarily hedge funds. We don't service retail. So we license data into different players that may provide a little bit of data data into retail investors, but we don't do that directly ourselves. Um, we uh, are, 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 we have a, a data terminal for built for institutions. And so the clients range from hedge funds. We do best with discretionary point and click traders. So people that are trading off of things like news, changes in blockchain activity, sentiment, anything like that. Uh, we sell into systematic funds as well. I would say the the vast majority of our clients tend to be larger in size. The average client is probably at this point over a billion in AUM. Um, so they tend to tend to be larger tends to be trading desks. We sell into tier one banks. Uh, now actually selling into regulators as well that want to stay on top of this market and understand why is this market moving because that helps shape policy and regulation. So it's 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 a range, but but. The vast, vast, vast majority of our clients are, are hedge funds, and it's you know it, we're, we're starting to I would say sign more traditional hedge funds than crypto hedge funds at this point. In terms of markets that you guys analyze and where things are moving, the metaverse has been something that everybody's talking about, and and it's hard to know exactly what that means in every different context. But things like NFTs, things like digital world worlds, whether it be Decentraland or or others. Um, how are you guys looking at how to read signals within the metaverse on things like NFTs, on things like uh, you know digital real estate and, and things of that nature? Is that somewhere where you guys are looking to wade into, or are you more focused on the currency side? So starting to dip our toes in it, uh, but that's more for the crypto native funds than the traditional funds. Traditional funds are generally easier to work with because they don't get as bored as fast. The crypto guys are used to things tripling every five minutes. And so if they're not into the next thing tomorrow, they're bored already. And so we actually rolled out this 
thing. Uh, we call it the NFT black hole. So there's this thing called the Ethereum black hole, which is a smart contract address where all new NFT mints and smart contracts originate. And what we're doing is showing our clients in the last five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, what NFTs are being minted the most and by how many holders. And, and things like floor price and other metrics around those NFTs. And that's more like, oh, I want to go throw all my money into this thing really quickly for a, you know, a three-day trade or whatever. We, we, show, we also show metrics on like, what are the hottest selling NFTs and things like that. But it's, it's really hard because like, as I mentioned before on like wash trading, it's like, what is the floor price? What are these things actually? But it's the same thing with art, right? Like art is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for, right? There's not like, there's not like a Bloomberg for art, really. There's not, you know, people aren't like, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard. Like things like baseball cards are easier just because there's, you know, you can go on eBay and you can see pricing history and stuff like that. And that's like kind of what we're trying to do with, with NFTs. But I would say we're still early the vast majority of what we're doing is just delivering information in real time to help somebody make a better decision. And a lot of times what people are using us for isn't even to find alpha. It's literally just to stay on top of the disparate market, right? So like just even knowing what the NFT activity is on Solana versus Ethereum is, is, is useful information. Well, it's a fascinating world and I, you're doing a great job of helping people to break down what I think is a very opaque um, and you know marketplace that has a lot of nefarious players in addition to a lot of great things and exciting things that are happening in the space, it's important that we figure out ways to sort through the noise. And you guys are doing a great job of that. Uh, Joshua Frank, again, your firm is the tie, the tie.io. If you want to learn more about their crypto SIG dev feeds and some of the other products uh, that Josh was talking about, it was a pleasure having you at Salt and, and uh, enjoyed having you on Salt Talks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Joshua Frank from The Tie. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website. It's salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. Uh, we're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at Salt Conference. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook as well. Um, and please spread the word about these Salt Talks. Again, I think if you're involved in these markets and you're not tapping into some of the uh, sentiment data that people like the tie are producing and the research that's coming from that sentiment data, you're doing yourself a disservice because as Josh mentioned, there's no real fundamentals in crypto per se, or a lot of assets, frankly. Uh, it's all about community and it's all about sentiment. And uh, that's what's driving crypto. And I think the tie is doing a great job of breaking all that down. But on behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.